Hi, I am Allison Burnett. I make my living writing screenplays for the movie studios, but my passion is fiction. My first novel, Christopher, which was a finalist for the 2004 Penn Center USA Literary Award in Fiction, was narrated by B.K. Troop, a tall, fat, bald, chemically imbalanced, middle-aged gay alcoholic. Today I'm going to be reading the first nine pages of my second novel, The House Beautiful, which also happens to be narrated by B.K. Troop. Greeting. It is indeed a rare gift that, at the age when most men are welcoming retirement with open, flabby arms, I have at last found my true calling. I am a novelist. Sadly, some would disagree. I know this because within moments of the publication of my debut novel, Christopher, they attacked me with ruthless vigor. Now, I am well aware that the longevity of one's fame depends as much on abuse as it does on praise. Fame is a shuttlecock, which to stay aloft must be struck at both ends. But it seemed that the entire critical community of Manhattan, a hideous assortment of bawling and blowing swellheads, hopeless waste goods, unctuous award seekers, fallow fancy boys, illiterate drones, crawling freelancers, Ivy League anti sexers, righteous marplots, coy cringing compromisers, suicidal bookworms, blind men, pimpled men, fat men, stinky men, the lousy combings and born idol smashers of the world, hurled at me every sort of nasty criticism. I was called a plagiarist, a lunatic, a homeless man's Rabelais, and Nabokov on paupers. A local East Side giveaway newspaper, a favorite among dying pensioners, called my prose of fire fatuous and overripe. They claimed I was Oscar Wilde without the wit, and that my eponymous hero was not worth a sane man's devotion or even the common reader's attention. They despised my particularity in times and dates. A librarian's fish wrapper, with a circulation upwards of seven, even had the gall to accuse me of unreliability, claiming that I had simply made it all up. My groundbreaking use of the virtually omniscient first-person narrator they labeled Arrogant Monkey Shine. Another blab sheet, printed on pink toilet tissue, clearly catering to the homosexualists who clutter like Dickens fans of yore along the docks of the West Side, called me a self-loathing grotesque. Jate, they charged that I, like some great lump of undigested cheddar, had set back the movement. The other prigs who deigned to review my book dwelled mostly on how dull it was. I would love to report that I hovered above the fray, secure in my knowledge that it was not for the critics of this generation that I had written my life-affirming tale, but for the schoolboys of the next. Yet, truth be told, I was wounded. Although I knew these criticisms were quite simply wrong, born of envy more than anything else, and while on the surface I bore them stoically enough, inwardly I mewled like a nettled kitten. Here I had given all of which I was capable, consuming myself like a very meteor to light the earth. And this was how my epic had repaid me? It was enough to make a proud man set down his ballpoint and fags and turn on the TV. And I almost did, especially when sales of Christopher stalled 
in the high four figures. Then the tide turned. I began to receive letters, almost three dozen in all, mostly from old bachelors, thanking me for the golden light that my novel had shed on their dismal, untenable lives. These communications came from every corner of the city. I read them again and again, struggling to make out the words through a scrim of my own grateful tears. It would be immodest for me to repeat what they said, but their outpourings of praise were as lavish as they were sincere. My intuition had been confirmed. My labor had not been in vain. The love that I felt for my protagonist and the value that I had placed on his struggle were not aberrations. I was not a freak. I was not alone. I enjoyed a readership. Renewed. Recreated. I rose from my queen, threw on my best tweed, and trotted off to the local stationers, where I picked up a brand new three-pack of legal pads and a carton of generic cigarettes. Then I hurried home and plopped down at my desk. The window admitted a cool, fresh breeze. From the next room could be heard the cozy clicking of computer keys, and from the basement the muffled glissando of a trombone. Gazing down at the street, I freed my fancy. Like a wind-blessed balloon, it drifted up and away, gliding over our recent troubles with our cousins of the sands to more innocent times. I was in search of a second tale to make deathless in prose, one to instruct the young, delight the old, correct the town, and castigate the age. An hour passed. My hips and buttocks were numb in the hard chair. An open bottle of two new Chianti wheezed at my side. I felt dizzy and afraid. Just as I was about to give up, it came to me like a descending angel. I would tell of a single summer in the House Beautiful. Not just any summer, but the sweet, sweltering season that brought me Adrian. A lad every bit as pretty and slim-hipped as Christopher, but even more sympathetic. A boy whose anguish reaffirmed for me the eternal truth that the life of the artist is the only life worth living. B.K. Troop Chapter 1 We Spend More Money on Toilet Seats It was June 16, 1989, the third anniversary of the death of my ex-landlady and dearest pal, Sasha Buckwitz. Sasha had gone to her reward as the result of a stroke, suffered during a much-needed round of electroconvulsive therapy. While in the hours following the vascular accident the prognosis had been hopeful, by morning it had all turned grim. Sasha, ever on the plump side, began to shed girth at an alarming rate, dipping for the first time since her salad days at New York University below 200 pounds. Her prodigious powers of speech did not return. Her left arm and left leg remained as lank as poached string. As she had no surviving family and no other friends, it fell on me alone to give comfort. Day after day I squatted at her bedside, stroking, humming, swabbing, adoring. My saintly ministrations recalled those of Mr. Walt Whitman at the cot sides of his beloved soldier boys. Although Sasha rarely moved a muscle, 
I entertained her with spirited readings from her vast trove of detective fiction, many of whose volumes still carried mid-century library slips on their inflaps. For a while it seemed that I had the healing touch. Her color deepened, and one afternoon, in reply to one of my countless beaux mots, she even managed something terrible that resembled a smile. Then, Bloomsday morning, 1986, her breathing became labored, and I heard, or imagined I did, the tap-tap-tap of the death watch. A few hours later, as reading aloud I hastened toward the predictable climax of an Agatha Christie, she gasped, coughed, and heaped. I screamed for the bearded Bengali nurse. Because I had screamed for her so often, it was a full eight minutes before she ambled in, carrying a pineapple popsicle. And by that time, Sasha's great pure heart was still. Three days later, she was laid to rest in a discount bone orchard in Queens. A stooped rabbi and I were the only witnesses. Before the unfinished pine box was lowered into the earth, I managed, in the manner of the pagans, to jam a silver dollar inside so that she might pay her fare. In the weeks of mourning that followed, the last thing on my mind was whether or not I would be named in her will. In fact, there was absolutely nothing on my mind, for I had come apart at the threads, shedding a nile of tears, not only for the death of my friend, but for every other loss I had sustained during my half-century on earth. The most recent was the passing, six months earlier, of dear old Wolf Zeller, my mentor, who met his maker on the corner of 55th Street and 8th Avenue, felled by a tardy bicycle messenger. Imagine then my surprise when Sasha's attorney called to inform me that I had been named sole beneficiary of her estate, which, after all her debts had been paid, came to more than $3,000 in cash and sole ownership of her exquisite turn-of-the-century brownstone and all of its contents. At first I was overjoyed, because there were very few places on earth where I would rather have lived. But then, late one night, reviewing all relevant documents and crunching every vital number, I realized the tax and utility bills alone were far more than my subsistence trust and meager government check could manage. And this was not even taking into account the hefty mortgage payment. Alas, it was true. Although this was Sasha's ancestral home, purchased decades before by her grandparents when they arrived on our shores after fleeing a less-than-efficient pogrom, Sasha had, at some point in the 1970s, following a demented spending spree, borrowed on the place. It was in hock up to its eaves. I would have to sell. There were no two ways about it, and it broke my heart. It would have broken Sasha's as well. The rising sun found me on the red vinyl of my beloved Parnassus diner, rocking anxiously like an unchosen orphan, my sole surviving friend, Ms. Cassandro Apo Pardumanos, an expert waitress and amateur sorceress, struggled over to condole. Boy trouble, she croaked, pulling her pencil from behind her fuzzy ear. It was a reasonable assumption. Since the disappearance of Christopher from my life, I had embarked on a series of ill-advised erotic adventures, each surpassing the last in futility and devastation. I shook my head, choked back my snot, and told her all. I ended by, the com by comparing the selling of Sasha's cherished home to the selling of her very carcass to a glue-and-wig factory. 
Cassandra was not only well-versed in signs, charms, divinations, and other quaint prospects of love, but she was also pretty shrewd with a drachma. Her witchy eyes twirled like pinwheels as she pondered the fiscal matter. Then she snapped her fingers. "'Rent out room,' she said. "'By God, she was right!' In no time at all, I had dismantled my treasures and home furnishings, my Bloomsbury aesthetic, and sold it on the sidewalk outside my building. It did not bring in a tenth of what it was worth. Then I set to prowling the neighborhood for cardboard boxes in which to transport my vast antiquarian library. The morning probate closed, I vaulted from my bed, a stir with cockeyed optimism. I brewed some coffee for the removalists and taped shut the last few boxes. By day's end, I was settled into my new digs. Rather, my old digs. I had, after all, lived in Sasha's brownstone for twenty-three years. But I was no longer the basement dweller. Now I ruled the master suite. After using my own two mitts to apply to the most important rooms, a fresh coat of paint, canary on the walls and ceilings, parchment on the trim, I tore apart a brown paper bag. I scrawled in majuscules the words, Rooms for Rent, and beneath that the word, cheap, and beneath that my new phone number. I taped it to the front window, and in no time the phone began to ring. The rooms I had to let, five in all, I priced at a mere two hundred dollars a month. I did this not because I am foolish, but because, ever devoted to Apollo, I had made up my mind to rent them only to artists. The thought of living with anyone else depressed me to no end. What on earth would there be to talk about? Plus, my experience with Christopher had taught me that my chief calling was to serve as mentor, if not muse, to those artists most in need, the young, struggling, and unhappy. I knew the word cheap would draw that particular demographic like fleas to the Irish. And I was right. From the large pool of young, struggling, and unhappy applicants, I chose the lucky few based on a long list of other, more narrow qualifications. Charm, beauty, talent and, most important, cultural and religious similarity to myself. Before I am accused of bigotry, another slander hurled at me by a knee-jerk Judy after the publication of my first novel, let me remind you that I have always been politically liberal to the extreme. I was, until his death, a lifelong supporter of Mr. Gus Hall, a fire-breathing commie, and every year I dig deep in support of a charity that feeds hot lunches to bloated foreign infants. Furthermore, in my bedroom, my tastes have always tended toward the exotic. My sexual resume reads like a Red Cross drop sheet. But cohabitation is a different matter altogether. If I am forced into close quarters with my own species, I am most comfortable with those who most closely resemble myself. For this reason, I admit into my home only English-speaking pagans. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. In terms of sexual preference, I naturally favor young, pretty male homosexualists, but I have learned from bitter experience that they are hard to come by, and even harder to keep. Lesbians, on the other hand, are easy to find and keep, but for some reason they do not like me. I don't know why. Perhaps it has something to do with their bitter natures. But I digress. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.